0: Networking is very much two-way, and I never approach networking from the point of view of what can I get out of it. I think that's absolutely the wrong approach. I think you have to approach networking from the point of view of finding ways to add value to other people, either personally or professionally. And I think you can do that almost every time you meet somebody for the first time or the hundredth time.
1: That was Jack Killian, longtime successful entrepreneur author, and networking expert providing one of his perspectives on what makes for successful networking. Networking is the trend topic we will explore on this episode, episode number 59 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward, If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. In today's episode of Looking Forward, we're going to discuss an activity which has become even more crucial to your career success and life fulfillment, networking. In part one of this two-part series, we'll discuss such things as what networking looks like, and effective ways to do it, how networking has evolved over the years, networking globally, and what impact COVID-19 is having on networking. To do that, we've brought on an outstanding guest expert who has successfully applied the skills of networking to his advantage, and at times, to the advantage of others too, for over 50 years. He's Jack Killian. Jack Killian, is the author of the book, Network All the Time, Everywhere, with Everybody. Jack has used his networking skills to launch and grow 10 different companies, buy, sell, and merge companies, and advise thousands of entrepreneurs. He's developed business opportunities both inside and outside of the United States. Jack's also counseled leaders of diverse Fortune 500 companies as a consultant with McKinsey & Company, During the early part of his career, he served on the boards of many U.S. and international private and public corporations and leading charities, been named the first entrepreneur in residence at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and has served as an adjunct professor at Rutgers, Montclair State, and Fairleigh Dickinson Universities. Jack's latest venture is Street Smart Entrepreneurs, which he founded and leads as its CEO. Street Smart Entrepreneurs strategically advises and provides Street Smart information via events and online courses to entrepreneurs, business owners, and leaders in person and online. Jack Killian received his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Yale University and his MBA from MIT. Hi, Jack. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hi, Jeff. Thanks a lot for this opportunity to speak to your group. Well, it's my pleasure, Jack. You've had such a distinguished career so far. And, Knock uh, on wood. And, <laughs> right, and I'm sure that you have a lot of wisdom to share with our audience. Jack, I know that you've been a proponent of networking for many years. And of course, you've written a book about that. And I'm wondering, how did you first become interested in networking? Is that something that you did even when you were very young or did the idea hit you much later, Jack?
0: I had no clue about networking up until about the age of 30. Wow. And I went to great colleges. I went to Yale, MIT and Harvard. I had two great corporate jobs. First one in England, the second one with McKinsey dealing with C-level executives of Fortune 500 companies. And I had never understood the importance of networking. I was never expected to network. It wasn't a topic back when I was that age, people were talking about. So I was clueless about the whole thing. And what really got me going is I left my job at McKinsey to start my entrepreneurial career, which is now going on for about 45 years. And I realized after about a week of being out on my own, that nobody was going to call me, nobody cared about what I was trying to do. And I was actually shy, intimidated, and petrified to reach out to people. But if I didn't do it, if I didn't start, I was going to be toast, and I don't like to be toast. <laughs> so I, I've essentially
1: been trying to get better at networking ever since. It's interesting that it wasn't something that struck you when you were much younger than that. I thought that honestly, what your answer is going to be. We haven't talked about this before the program, and I really thought you were going to say that. So this is surprising. So it was the idea of being out there in a quiet office, as I once was when I did the same thing, by the way, realizing it was dead. Nothing was happening. I had to do something. That's what happened to you. Right. It was. It all was based on necessity.
0: I had to do it, and I had to overcome all my personal hangups and being intimidated and shy and lack of confidence. But uh, if I didn't do that, you know, we were going to starve.
1: You're going to starve. that's
0: a bad option.
1: Yeah, that is a bad option. I have to ask you a quick follow-up question, Jack, to that. For a guy who was shy, where did you get the courage to jump out of McKinsey, a great company, and say, I'm going to go out on this entrepreneurial career? Actually. That's a
0: funny answer to that question, because at McKinsey, I thought I was doing okay. I had been there four years, four and a half years, and I thought I was doing okay. And one day, one of the senior partners called me into his office and talked to me about proposing the first step of partnership at the end of the year. This was like late summer. And uh, I went back to my office and I usually work late that night. And I really lacked the confidence that I would be capable of being a partner at McKinsey. Wow. And if he, if, we, if I had never had that conversation, I'd probably still be at McKinsey and maybe even running McKinsey. Cause <laughs> I think I turned out to be pretty good, but I went back up to my office and uh, I thought about it and I thought, I really don't want the partners that McKinsey being under the impression that I was interested in becoming a partner at the end of the year. So I called my wife up late that night and I said, I just made two decisions. And she said, what are they? I said, we're gonna buy a race horse." And She said, when are we gonna do that? I said, well, we don't have any real money so I have to find a cheap horse. And she said, what else did you decide? I said, I'm gonna quit my job. And she said, What are you gonna do that? I said, tomorrow. And she said, why? And I explained. And she supported me. So I went down to the partner's office the next day, told him I appreciated his confidence in me, but I really didn't feel comfortable. That's what I want to do the rest of my life. So I think I'm going to wrap up my engagements and leave the firm. And it took me three or four months to wrap up the projects I was working on. And the offer kept getting boosted up, you know, trying to retain me. But once I had made that decision, I finally walked out the door, no office, no partners, no clients, no money, just with a vision and a determination to do this. In my first venture, I was gonna focus on raising funding for other entrepreneurs because I've always been interested in entrepreneurship. I grew up in a small family owned business. So it's just part of my DNA. So I walked out the door with a vision of raising money for other entrepreneurs, not having any money myself to invest, not having any contacts with investors to invest and not having any entrepreneurs, clients looking for funding. So I started with a clean slate and I've been going ever since networking has really been the key to
1: whatever things I've been able to get done. Well, we're going to get deep into that. It's just an interesting story about how you had the courage to get out, and it really is showing how networking must have been the key to your success. Jack, if you could give us an example, just one, I'm sure you'd have many, of something that you did in the way of networking that helped you in your career, and something that somebody else did in networking with you that was able to help them by their making a contact with you?
0: Well, the second venture I started, I started the first national country music magazine as a total startup. And I cold called a company called the Minneapolis star tribune. I had read an article that uh, one of their publications, Harper's was in trouble This is five years after I started my firm to raise venture capital. By that time, I picked up two partners and I said to my two partners, I had read an article in the New York Times that Harper's was in trouble. I said, let's call the Minneapolis Star Tribune Company that owns Harper's and see if we can convince them to hire us to try to fix turn around, and help them sell Harper's. But in order to do that, they have to put up all the money, which at that time, 30 years ago was $500,000. They have to invest $500,000 in the startup country music magazine. And we got that deal done. And I I could cite example after example, for example, uh, the one point, my wife wasn't feeling very well and her doctor wasn't able to really uh, figure out what was going on. So I cold called the head of women's health at Robert Wood Johnson in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I got her on the phone. I explained the situation. I asked her if she could take a look at Judy pretty quickly. And she said, of course, have her come in tomorrow. Judy went down to the doctors uh, the next day. They operated on her that night. And when I got down to the hospital after the surgery, they told me if you hadn't gotten Judy here today, she was either going to lose her leg or lose her life. So major personal accomplishment by cold calling and networking. In terms of interesting things going the other way, yes, I was invited to an event at the White House with President Jimmy Carter. I've met three US presidents through networking. And I was at a country music dinner that he organized after he got elected because the country music industry raised a lot of money for his campaign. And as the publisher and founder of the leading publication in the field, I got invited to the dinner. Okay, And I had a chance at the dinner to go one-on-one with the president for about 10 minutes. And that was a very interesting discussion. And then uh, about a month later, I got a call from the White House. And it was the president asking me if I would be willing to help his brother, Billy Carter, think through how to develop his career. Billy Carter at the time had some notoriety of his own. So I wound up spending time with president carter's brother helping him think through his career options he came to our office with his secret service agents and we all went out to lunch together (laughs) networking is very much two-way and i never approach networking from the point of view of what can i get out of it i think that's absolutely the wrong approach i think you have to approach networking from the point of view of finding ways to add value to other people either personally or professionally. And I think he can do that almost every time you meet somebody for the first time or the hundredth time.
1: Jack, that is great. Another quick question based on what you said, you're talking about picking up a phone and making a cold call. What's the difference between cold calling, which I usually associate with sales and it scares people to death and networking? Because a lot of what you were doing there sounded like you just picked up a phone, you called somebody. It's a little different than my traditional notion of networking. What's the difference in your mind between the two?
0: I think a lot of people view cold calling as selling. Yes. And I never want to cold call anybody to sell anything. If you're going to cold call somebody, I think the first thing you have to have is it has to be a win-win reason to call. Like when we call the Minneapolis Star Tribune to try to get them to work with us, what was in it for them was if if they judged us to be really competent, we might be able to help them save Harper's Magazine. I've used cold calling, for example, to get all the money I needed to buy a 50-acre farm in New Jersey. I was under a time pressure to do that. So I thought the one person in America that could help me figure out how to do that was the Secretary of Agriculture in Washington. Okay. So, I cold called the Secretary of Agriculture in DC. I didn't get him, but I got one of his top lieutenants. And I said, you know, the reason I'm calling, I'm interested in buying a 50 acre farm in New Jersey. And I think we have the same objectives. I think the Department of Agriculture would much prefer for the farm to be maintained as a farm as opposed to being turned into a housing development, which is going to happen if I don't buy it. And my objective is to keep it as a farm and use it to breed and train racehorses. So I think we have something in common and I need help. I need help being steered to possible sources of funding that I can use to buy the farm because I don't have any money of my own. So cold calling can be effective when it's a win-win situation and you're not selling something and when you have a need that is both urgent and important. I had 30 days to match the highest offer on the farm. So it was urgent. And my wife and I really wanted to go into the racehorse business. So it was important. So given it's urgent and important, that got me over being shy about calling the secretary of agriculture. Yes. I absolutely cannot accept not getting through personally, but I wasn't calling to sell them on anything. I was calling to explain the situation explain where the win-win was, and ask for help. So I think you have great success cold calling when you're asking for help. Good people want to help other people. And if you cold call somebody and they're not interested in helping you, that's probably a pretty good indication that they're not the person you want to
1: work with anyway. Good points. I must say already, you are really broadening my definition of networking I always think of networking as a person you meet out on the street and you talk to them. But this is fascinating. Let's talk a little bit more about your perspective, Jack, on how you think networking has evolved over, say, the last several decades pre-COVID. You've been around for a while. You started networking when you were about 30 years of age. What trends or changes, Jack, have you seen in how networking is done again pre COVID?
0: Well, it's just a much hotter
1: topic right
0: now. You know, there's a lot more opportunities to do it. People have created opportunities to do it. There's networking groups all over the world being formed almost on a daily basis. Back in my day, there were no networking groups other than some uh, community clubs like Rotary or Kiwanis or whatever. Even alumni groups were not very robust. So, just the number of opportunities to network has exploded. There's yeah. all kinds of conferences now. Back in the early days, at one point, I owned an industrial equipment manufacturing company, and the major trade show in that industry in the US happened every four years. Now, if I look back, I would probably expect to see, you know, 20 conferences a year in that sector. So just the the number of organized ways to network has exploded. And I think people in general have become more aware of it. I don't think they've necessarily become better at it. I think too many people still have this perspective that it's really aimed at selling and it's really involves going to events, exchanging cards, following up and, and hoping you get lucky. Well, I actually go to very few events, I would much rather organize my own events. So in any business that I've been in, I've organized my own events because part of my business philosophy is I like to chum for potential clients, put out a lot of bait and get people coming to me as opposed to me investing a lot of money in advertising and marketing chasing potential clients. So rather than me going to some event that somebody else organized, where some of the people will be of interest and a lot won't be, I'd rather create my own events, get people coming to me. And I figured out formulas for doing that. So the company actually makes money on the event. So it's not spending money organizing the event. When I was in the hedge fund business, for example, I put together a one day event for high net worth investors, and I let them come for free. I had about 175 high net worth investors come for a one-day program, but I got other hedge funds and professional services firms to support and co-sponsor the event, paid me a few bucks to speak and be there, and I netted $55,000 just from the event, and I picked who came. I picked who I was going to network with. So it was 100% efficiency in terms of how I spent the day. Plus, I made $55,000 putting the event together.
1: (laughs) You talked about how networking has evolved and it's become much more commonplace, much more accessible than when you first started. Then you talked about your own approach. Is the approach that you use untraditional or unorthodox to what you've seen over the years being used by others? It's totally different than
0: what most people and what most companies do. You know, when I talk to people about organizing your own event, either personally or as a company, they immediately go to, oh, we don't have time. We don't know how to do that. Yes, Nobody in our team can do that. We wouldn't know who to invite. I mean, it takes one person very part-time for a few weeks to pull together a successful event. Before I did it, I didn't know how to do it. One of my basic philosophies is that in any organization or in the world, there's very few difference makers. Most people go through life not really making a difference. So they're not going to go the extra effort that I'm willing to go to to do some of the crazy things I do. (laughs) Going back to the dinner at the White House, when I was talking to President Carter one-on-one, just before he left me to go talk to the next person, he said, Jack, I've got to move around the room Is there ready. Anything else you'd like to ask me before I move on? I said, yeah, Mr. President, one thing. He said, what's that? I said, you're running this whole big international organization with hundreds of thousands of employees. How many really difference-making people do you have helping you accomplish what you want to accomplish? He said, Jack, that's a great question. Nobody ever asked me that. How <laughs> many do you think? I said, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it, but if I had to guess, I'd guess maybe 20. <laughs> he thought about it and he said, if I think about it, he said, I think maybe 10. <laughs> so in any organization, there are very few difference makers. Yes. And one of the things that I think makes a person a difference maker, because we're all essentially the same. We all have good educations, we have good work experience, we have good references, we get our job done. The thing that can make a person a difference maker is the quality of their network and how they use their network. And that I think is fundamental to making people a difference maker.
1: Wow, that's great, Jack. That is really interesting. Let me ask you, we have about 25% of our listeners who don't live in the United States. And you've been talking about the evolution of networking and a little bit about how you've used networking. From your perspective, and I know you've certainly not limited your own ventures or travels to the United States, is what you've said applicable to the rest of the world too? Is networking done the same way? Is it as it is potent in the rest of the world? Have you used it in other parts of the world? Can you speak to that, please?
0: Sure. I've been uh, in several parts of the world. I've worked and lived full-time both in France and in England. And then when I had my manufacturing company, I sold that to a public British company. And I went on their board for three years. We did 10 acquisitions. So networking was important in terms of finding potential acquisition targets. I don't know the the degree to which networking is used in, in many countries, particularly the emerging markets around the world. But I think almost everything that I talk about can be applied globally. And in my current venture, which is called Street Smart Entrepreneurs, I'm aiming to help entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders worldwide. So I'm starting to attract people reaching out to me from around the world almost on a daily basis. And I think one of the positives that's going to come out of COVID-19 is it's going to really spur the development of global relationships and it's going to create all kinds of new business opportunities for business leaders worldwide, because now you're able to use technology and networking to attract new opportunities globally. Yes. And I think any, anybody, any company, any business leader who isn't thinking like that is going to get left behind. So I I think most of what I do from a networking point of view is certainly applicable worldwide. And I've done it. For example, when I own my manufacturing company, I put together events for that company. I got the American embassies in all the Latin American countries to host events, one-day events sponsored by my company. And we would go into Mexico and Panama and Uruguay and Brazil and do a one-day program on the polymer processing technologies in America, and we would get 200 people coming to those events, and many of them became customers. So I used networking at events in other countries as a way to build up a whole market in Latin America for my manufacturing company.
1: Well, that's a great specific example of how it's applicable elsewhere, too, and how you've used it that way. Jack, it's probably a good time before we get to talking a little bit more about COVID's impact, which you alluded to there briefly, to have you define networking. We probably should have done this earlier. Again, my initial impression of networking was what you talked about there for a moment, which is you go to an event. This is one way. And you meet people. You exchange business cards. This is pre-COVID or you have a conversation with somebody on the street, you just meet somebody or wherever you are, you might start talking to them, but it sounds like networking to you is a lot more than that. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about what is networking is it seems like it's not limited to those things I just mentioned. I think networking should be part of everybody's daily
0: routine. I think you should build it into your lifestyle. Networking to me means meeting people, figuring out whether you have something in common that is worth pursuing. And if it's a person that you really have things in common with, work on developing that relationship. And if you live to be 80, for example, and you meet 10 new people a day starting from the day you're born, which I think is probably a safe average, you're going to meet 300,000 people in your life. And you can't stay in touch with all of them. right? So you have to keep prioritizing who you're going to really put your energy into. And as you move through different parts of your life, different jobs, different careers, different personal situations, each time you're in a different community of people that you have to network within that community. For example, when I was in the country music business, I had to network with artists and TV people and agents. and venues. And when I was in manufacturing, I had to network with major manufacturing companies and equipment suppliers. So every part of your life is a different community that you really have to meet the key people, build relationships. I equate networking to rock climbing. So when you meet somebody, you're trying to find the finger holes where you can add value. And don't think about what you can get out of it, but think about what you can do for them, because the best way to really leverage relationships is to have them based on trust and a great way to achieve trust is by really helping people succeed. And you can do that in big ways, or you can do that in little ways. And when I coach young people, high school and college kids about networking, they don't think they could add value to a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates, right? Yeah. And I said, don't be, don't be silly you know a good Italian restaurant you could recommend, or a good steakhouse, or a good golf course, or a good B&B? There's lots of ways to add value to people, but you have to do it based on finding these common finger holes where you have things to add. And people who say they don't network, I, I tell them, that, that's not true. You were born into your first network. You were born into a family. That's your first network. You, you hit the ground. You couldn't talk. You couldn't walk. You were totally dependent on the goodwill of other people. So you were building relationships with your family members. That's your first network. And you just have to continue that process the rest of your life.
1: That's great. You can almost make it an analogous situation, Jack, between the infant trying to survive by establishing relationships with their family and you... Going back to the days when you left your job, you were all on your own then, and you had had a network to make your life survivable, right? To make it work. Right, to create create a new family. To create a new family. It's an interesting analogy. Jack, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 again. It's clearly had a dramatic impact on individuals and their ability to connect with one another, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about your perspectives on what impact you think COVID-19 has had on networking.
0: Well, I can just cite my personal situation. Pre-COVID, I have a little grid that when I talk about networking, I walk people through the grid. On the left-hand column are all the ways I could network. I could have breakfast with somebody, lunch with somebody, dinner with somebody, coffee or drinks with somebody. I could go to an event, I could belong to a group, and I could do it back then with email or Zoom or whatever. Pre-COVID, 80% of my time was spent meeting people over breakfast. I probably had between 250 and 300 breakfast meetings a year. Wow! And I picked breakfast because they're cheap. (laughs) because they're fast and because almost everybody's willing to meet first thing in the morning. I didn't have double-digit lunches or dinners during a year or coffee meetings. I maybe went to three or four events at most during the year, and I might have joined one or two groups at most a year. So I was really concentrated on breakfast breakfast. And that took up 80% of my time and 50% of the money I spent, I used to spend, I estimated about $5,500 a year on networking, every aspect of it. And the second biggest time commitment, other than the breakfast meetings and money commitment was traveling to and from meetings. So those two things took up 80% of the money, 80% of the time. Yes. After COVID happened, I didn't have breakfast with anybody for maybe eight or nine months. And I shifted that energy, that time to doing things on the internet, on Zoom, on LinkedIn. And I don't think I'll ever go back to the breakfast model. Post COVID, I would expect to have maybe 50 breakfast meetings a year, but continue really aggressively using digital platforms to network which makes it possible to network globally. Yes. So, for example, I try to post about once a week on LinkedIn, but also on LinkedIn, I've joined about 20 other groups, relevant groups, small business owners, chief executive officer, whatever. And when I post on my profile, I post in their groups. And now I'm starting to get people responding to those posts from around the world. Yes. And then I always ask him if you're interested in following what I'm doing, send me your email. So I'm building an email database, and I've got people from all over the world. This morning, I got approached by somebody in Saudi Arabia, wants possible help in finding potential investment opportunities in the U.S. So again, it's chumming. It's putting bait out there. It's getting people coming to me and me sorting through which ones are viable, which ones aren't and focusing on building relationships with the ones that are really good.
1: It sounds wonderful, and I'm just curious, from the networking that you do and from what you observe on places like LinkedIn, do you feel as though this is pretty much becoming the common way of networking, that we're going to move more away from networking by flesh, so to speak, going to meetings and things, and it will be more about these connections that are made virtually. Is that what you're thinking, Jack?
0: Yeah, I think the virtual meetings are going to be really important. You know, the world is shrinking, and we can no longer view ourselves just as a U.S.-based whatever. So we have to approach the world as our opportunity, right? Yes. And, you know, I I can't go have breakfast with somebody in Saudi Arabia or Paris or London. So I'm going to have to rely on this. You know, at some point I'm going to have to travel or they're going to have to travel, but that'll come down to the top five or 10% of our contact. I'm not going to put in that effort and they're not going to put in that effort on a marginal relationship that they have going on. You'll focus the in-person meetings on the absolute most critical things that you have to get done. And that'll justify the investment of money and time to go wherever you have to go because they could be any place in the world.
1: This concludes part one of our two-part series on networking trends, opportunities, and the future with our guest expert, Jack Killian. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your family, friends, and other members of your network about it and encourage them to listen to it too. And please join us for part two when Jack Killian provides more great tips on the benefits of networking and how to network and we discuss where networking may go in the future and what opportunities that may present to those in the know, including you, our Looking Forward listeners. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, Jeff dash Ostroff.com. That's J E F F dash Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on looking forward.